Hi, this is Pastor Jim. Thanks for joining us for this week's message from Riverside Church. I believe you will be inspired and blessed by the Word of God. We'd love to welcome you to one of our services next time you're in the Brisbane area. If you'd like to know more about us, go online at www.riversidecc.org.au or like us on Facebook to hear about up-and-coming events. I hope you enjoy the message. God bless you. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to be in church again. We are doing a series on the book of John. How many of us remember where did we end up the last time when Pastor Jim, that's it, Pastor Jim preached? Which chapter did we end up with? There's a prize at the end of this. The prize is an applause. <laughs> yes, chapter 5. That's, that's good. This morning, I just want to continue on with that. Um, in that series, we'll be dealing with chapter 6. Now, I want to read some verses from chapter 6. Always good to have a red Bible. Because this Bible uh, is only possible because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, I love a red Bible. So, I'm going to read from my red Bible. John chapter 6, starting from verse 2. And a large crowd followed him, because they saw the signs which he did on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain... And there sat down with his disciples. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of, this, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. This is an interesting passage in John. John calls miracles signs because signs, S-I-N-S, they point to something. So Jesus teaches by word and he teaches by action through miracles, through signs. There are some important lessons here, big lessons in this passage here. Uh, there are there are four 
persons or characters or groups of persons in this passage here. So we're going to ask a question of each of these persons or groups of persons. There are four of them, so I'll just quickly name them. Firstly, there is the crowd. Number two, there were the 12 disciples. Then there was Jesus himself. Then there was that little boy. Four of them. And we want to ask a question. Who are you of each of these four groups? And by asking that question, we'll tease out a big lesson that Jesus would have us learn today. Now, the number of people involved in this miracle or sign is such that it would make this miracle the greatest miracle ever. You've got 5,000 men, and if you include the women folk and the children, we're talking anywhere roughly 20,000 people, let's say. 20,000 people at one time experiencing a miracle would qualify this as being the biggest, greatest miracle ever apart from the resurrection, of course. This miracle or this sign is recorded in all four Gospels, and it's the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that's being mentioned in all four Gospels. Uh, just as a bit of a context and a recap, uh, if you read all four Gospels, therefore, we get a harmonized view of this event. So, other than just John, I'm going to introduce what the other three gospel writers uh, have written on this event. Jesus and his disciples had been ministering, busy, 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 all, all week. John the Baptist, the news came, he had been beheaded. And so, in all their hecticness, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go somewhere and rest a while. We need a little rest. And so, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, which is in northern Israel, they were on the northwestern side of the lake. Uh, and so Jesus said, let's take a boat and go to the other side. What he meant was, let's go to the northeastern side. Because on the northeastern side, it's, it's more... It's more acreage, it's rural, it's not urbanized, and we can find some opportunities to rest. And so as they traveled there, the crowd got wind of what was going on. So they said, there goes Jesus, he's been helping us, he's been healing us, let's go. So on foot, a large crowd ran on foot across the northern edge of the lake to meet Jesus uh, I think it's uh, over at Bethsaida in the northeastern side of the lake. And when they got there, the disciples thought, great, we're in this place. Uh, oh, the crowds are coming. Lord, send them away. It's, they thought it was a brilliant idea. Send them away. But Jesus said this, no, we don't need to send them away. You feed them. That's what Jesus said. Now, so there are, they eventually found some food, five loaves of fish, five loaves of bread, 
and two fish, which I'll explain a little later. And uh, Jesus gave thanks. Thank you for this food, Father. Bless this. Multiply this. And the food just kept coming and coming. Everyone was fed. There are four groups of people, as I've said earlier. We need to ask this question. Who are you? So the first one, we're going to ask, who are you, crowd of 5,000? Well, if you include the women and so on. Who are you, crowd of 20,000? Who are you? John chapter 6, verse 2 tells us this. And a large, large, a multitude, a throng, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Who are you, large crowd? Who are you, human race? Who are you? Some people say the human race is getting better and better. We are capable of putting right whatever's wrong in the world. We can do it, and we don't need the help of God. There's a group called, it's an international humanistic group. This is what they're saying. We can better the world without God. We are self-sufficient. We are self-reliant. That's what they're saying. We don't need God. But the Bible says this. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he did on the sick. If you are self-reliant and self-sufficient, why would you be running after Jesus? Why would you be running to him for healing of the sick? There's another group of people who say, oh, we human beings are like animals. We, we're actually at the apex of the animal kingdom. We, we are right on top there, but our cousins are like chimpanzees. We're right on top. We will succeed and we will prosper. But in the process, we will use and abuse, and we will then discard of the people that we find we've got no more use of. We will step on every man or woman or child to get to the top. There is only one life. He who has the most toys wins at the end. Only one life. When death comes... That's the end of everything. Well, the Bible says this. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. If we were to be discarded at the end of it, when we, have, when we are of no use to society or anyone, why did Jesus heal the sick? Why did Jesus feed the hungry? Why did Jesus do that? Even the disciples needed to change their thinking. The first thing they said when they saw the crowd, Lord, discard them. Send them away. Discard them. Even the disciples. Then Jesus said, you feed them. They need not go away. So the human race is not just like animals. We might be classified biologically speaking, by modern science as being in the animal kingdom, 
But we are much, 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 much more than animals. Because the Bible tells us this. Who are you, human race? We were made in the image of God. There is value. There is worth. Immense worth and value in every human person. However, due to Adam's rebellion, we have now been beset with what we call the fallen human condition. We're not sufficient in ourselves, but neither are we to be discarded of at the end if we are of no use to society. We have become dead in sin, and that simply means we are dead towards God. That's what it means. We are dead to God. We are hopelessly helpless and in deep need, but God has not discarded us. A large crowd followed Jesus. Many were sick. They were carrying, and and many were limping towards Jesus, and they were hungry. All kinds of diseases were represented in that crowd that afternoon. Some came along. Some were with family, with friends. All needed Jesus. But there's another suffering. There's another pain. There's another kind of need that's even more critical than the physical bodily need. And this is the desperate need of the soul, the need for peace the need for meaning and love. Mark tells us in the same feeding event, Mark's gospel says this, he saw the crowd and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Speaking more generally about crowds, Matthew in chapter 9 says this, he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You know what that word harassed means? It means being skinned alive. That's what it means, the crowd. They were being skinned alive to be flayed. And to the, so much so they were mangled and twisted. That's harassed. And then Jesus, Matthew says this, they were harassed and helpless. You know what's helpless? To be tossed aside be set aside, to be discarded, to be discarded. In the, in the face of that hungry crowd, you can see all the desperation. One father could have brought the daughter crippled and, and, and having had seizures, and he could have said, Rabbi, heal my daughter. He, don't let me carry her back the way I came. Heal my daughter. In the face of all that desperation, you can see the people were weary of living. They were exhausted, disturbed. They were bewildered. All sorts of people were in that crowd. One might say the need of the soul that is even more painful than any physical pain. Go into any cinema. Go to any crowded place where crowds gather. Crowded place. A cinema, a train, a bus, a library, There are people with hidden pain, people with broken hearts, people with lives that they would would want to find healing for. A story was told of a paramedic who received a call to go to a certain part of town. And as he was driving, rushing with his ambulance, 
the message came. This is the specific address. As he got the address, he recognized this is my parents' house. He raised there, opened the door, and he saw one brother dead with a bullet wound to the head. And another brother seated across with a gun in his hand. Talk about pain. Talk about suffering. There are many skeletons in the cupboard. All of us, every family or extended family, has skeletons in the cupboard. And sometimes we have many cupboards as well. It is a sad, sad story. There is misery everywhere. But I tell you, there is a misery that is even more miserable than physical, emotional, mental, and all of the skeletons in our cupboards. And this is what is described by Paul, the the condition of the human race lost without God. Romans chapter 3. Look at this. Romans chapter 3 and the verses are coming out. We are an unrighteous race. Romans 3, 12. All have turned aside. Together they have done wrong. No one does good, not even one. That's our condition. Then we are a deceitful race. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. That that represents all of us, that verse. We are a violent race, Romans 3.15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And we hear that in the news, in our suburbs, in our inner cities. We are a fallen, sinful human race. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But then Paul says this, and this is the great news. We are a redeemed race. Despite all of that, Romans 3.24, they are justified by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are redeemed. We are not discarded off. We have not been tossed aside. Are you? Have you been justified? Have you taken... People talk a lot about receiving Christ, receiving Christ. I'll add this. To receive Christ means believing what the Bible says. It's doctrinal. Believing what He says about salvation. And also making it personal. Making it personal and saying, Lord, I'm following you. From henceforth, we need to ask the next question. Have you therefore received Jesus? Have you have Jesus in your heart? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you redeemed? Let's ask the next question of the next group of people. Who are you, disciples of Jesus? Who are you? John 6, 5, lifting up his eyes, then... And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Jesus knew what he was doing. The other versions actually said, uh, You feed them. And obviously, amongst that discussion, they were talking about, Oh, we need bread, we need money. And, And that's where Jesus asked, Where do we buy bread? And Philip immediately took out his calculator and said, Rabbi, master, 200 denarii, which is worth eight months' worth of a man's wage, would not be enough to to give each of them 
a tiny little bit of bread. They need not go away. You feed them. Who are the disciples? As far as the eye can see, heads bobbing up and down, heads all over the horizon, 20,000 people. Who are you, disciples? If you ask me then, I'd say, you disciples are a bunch of slow coaches, no good, totally overwhelmed, inadequate, useless, hopeless. All of these would describe the 12. But you know, Jesus could have done this. Jesus could have said, you 12, how long must I bear with you again? He didn't. Not on this occasion. Jesus could have done this. Jesus could have said, all right, you 12, stand there in the corner. Groups of 50s, stay still. And he could have easily snapped his fingers and, and bread and fish could have just appeared floating right at arm's length in, in front of every person, every person equally distributed. He could have done, he could. He could have rained down this. He could have caused food dumps to occur at each of the groups of 50s. Help yourselves, guys. He could have done that, but he didn't. He said, he said the prayer, he, he prayed. And the Bible tells us, not in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Bible tells us he passed the food to his disciples. He says, I want to use you. I want to use you. They were confused. They were overwhelmed. They were, in fact, the Bible tells us right at the end, before Jesus ascended up to heaven, they were to meet Jesus in Galilee. And the Bible tells us they went, some doubted. Even up to that end of the road, they were doubting. So we have a group of doubters, hopeless people, helpless, and Jesus says, I want to use you. That's who they really are. That's who they really are. Who are you, disciples? Useful. Partners with God. Effective. Part of that ministry of Jesus. Let's ask the next question. Who are you, Jesus? We need to answer this the right way. We cannot afford to get a wrong answer. Who are you, Jesus? John 6, 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. It wasn't just like, oh, I just had one serve. They, they ate to their fill. They were, it was a full course meal. And there was leftover. It was a miracle. It wasn't just like, oh, you know. 
some humanists, humanistic Christians even, they say, ah, oh, this is what happened. The little boy showed a good example. He, because of his generosity, everyone else took out their baskets and they shared their meal. So everyone ate. This Bible didn't say so. This Bible said Jesus multiplied their food. It was a miracle. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Now, we could answer. We, we could say, we saw a man took charge of a crowd of 20,000 people. What a man. What a man. He took charge. There was no pandemonium. There was no disturbance. He obviously was a man of great qualities, a wise teacher, a man of compelling personality. Well, that's not the right answer. That may be it, but there's a lot more than that. He is that and much more. He's the God Almighty, the Creator, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The loaves and fish were like this. The, the basket is like our lunchbox. You know, we carry a, a man bag or a kid bag or a lady's bag. It's like a bag where you put everything in, you know. Uh, so in those days when they go out for an excursion or whatever, you always have a little bag for your snacks. So this is five pieces of biscuits, like your Seo Anzac biscuit. It is. That's what it is made of barley. And fish, it's not like a barramundi. It's, it's a tiny preserved, salt-preserved relish or, or condiment. It's, it's just a tiny little piece to put onto your seo, and the little kid could have his bite. That's what it is. Um, and the baskets were small lunch boxes. For a fallen sinful race like us, who we need is a mighty savior, a mighty God, not just a good personality, not just a, a man who can organize things. We need almighty God. We need a savior. I started school and the first week or so I got bullied. Uh, I was small, I still am, but they ganged up on me. A group of boys formed a circle, grabbed my water bottle, and they said, come and get it, and they chuck it to the other one. So I was made to run around like a fool. My dad appeared to pick me up, and I said to my father, this is what happened, and I pointed out, these are the ones. You know what? After that, this whole thing never happened again. It never happened again. They threatened me. The boy said, I'm going to do this to you every day now. But after that, nothing. My dad confronted them. What to a six-year-old boy, your father, your earthly father is like an omnipotent figure. That's who he is. When you go through a lot of pain and difficulties, you cannot do without your heavenly father. He is truly omnipotent. Every trouble, every struggle you go through, he is standing there with you. The Bible has many words to describe compassion. Pity, love, 
grace, uh, mercy, all of these words uh, can be strung together to form that word compassion. But when, when the New Testament authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote this event, they used compassion, they talked about compassion, they had to invent a new word that's not been used in Greek literature whatsoever. And that new word really means to be so intensely moved in the inner parts. It's like a gut-wrenching emotion. It's like a guttural movement in the insides. That's compassion. That's the word they used of Jesus. Can you imagine the 12 were standing there, the crowd of 20,000, Jesus says, feed them. And standing next to them is God Almighty, compassionate Savior, the highly compassionate one. And yet, yet, the twelve failed to tap upon the resources that Almighty God has. Can you imagine that? But we do the same. We do the same. When things go hard, we panic. And we say, who's going to get us out of this mess when Almighty God, Almighty, all-compassionate, He's standing there right with us. Who are you, Jesus? We need the right answer. We cannot afford to get our answer wrong on this person. Here's the last person that we need to ask that question of. Who are you? Who are you, little boy? Who are you? John 6, 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Andrew is a funny guy. He quickly scurries around looking for some resource, and he found this little boy. And happily... He runs to Jesus. I found, I found some answer. Here's a little one. And then he stops with a but. Huh. But what is five seo bikis and two anchovies? What are these two among so many? That's what we, we, we despise. The smallness of our, of our being. If it if it was me to choose, I, I would bypass that little boy if it's me. What can he do? What can he do? What I need is a philanthropist, any president of the North Galilee Baking Society here. I, I would be asking that question. I would be looking for the big guns. Not this little boy. What can he do? But not Jesus. Not Jesus. When, when the Bible says little boy, it suggests he would be no more than five years of age. He was enough to know, but still not enough to know. Okay, he's in that in-between age. Who are you, little boy? Such a weak attempt at solving a complex problem. Who are you? Two anchovies. But, you know, I didn't choose that boy. God did. God did. And with God, little means 
a lot. You know, God is attracted to weakness. God surely is. Um, we will not choose the little boy, but God would. Why? To show his grace and then to demonstrate his glory. Look at salvation, the gospel message. You know, I was an engineer. And uh, I shared my faith with some engineering friends, one-on-one. And um, one said, one man said, it's good this works for you, Ken. I love my golf. I love my horses, acreage. I love my boat, weekends. This works for you. That works for me. There was an... Another person I spoke to, and she said, because highly technical, scientific minds, what you talk is too simple, Ken. Too simple. Blood, someone hanging on the cross, shed his blood. Too simple. I'm after something more complex and deep. And, you know, but that's how. Salvation is by The simple shedding of the blood of the perfect man of God, son of God. And the wise stumble over that stumbling stone. They do. Charles Spurgeon was, he's one of my favorites. You may be able to tell. When he was 19, he was pastoring a village church out in a rural area, a suburb of Cambridge. And it was a small church. And one day he received a letter. We're inviting you to be the pastor of our church. This is the biggest church in London. Now, in the 1800s, England was the superpower of the world. The British Empire, the sun never sets on the empire. And this is the capital of that empire. And this is the capital church of that capital city. And young Spurgeon at 19, when he received that letter, he said, who am I? I'm a little kid. Nobody knows me. He wrote back, you have made a mistake. This letter needs to be redirected to the right person. Another letter comes back. We have not made any mistake. We want you. And so Spurgeon ended up being pastor of that church for decades and decades. Planted and built a large church. Some of you say, I'm unknown. I'm just like that little boy. I'm just like Spurgeon. Well, God is attracted to weakness. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, unknowns, obscure, 
to bring to naught things that are, so that no human beings can boast in the presence of God. You see, at the end of it, it's God's glory, God gets the glory. God's grace, God gets the glory. 6th of January, 1850, special day in England. Snow blizzard was carpeting all of England. And a young lad of 15 was going to his church. He was not a born-again Christian at all. He was burdened by sin. He was burdened, and he didn't find a way out. And because of that snowstorm, that blizzard, he, he stopped short at a, in another church close by. Before reaching his church, he went in. And as he went in, there was only about 10, 12 people because even the pastor wasn't there because of the snowstorm. They waited and they waited. And then one young man, skinny man, a skinny poor man arose and went to the pulpit. He wasn't a, he wasn't a preacher. He couldn't preach. In fact, he spent 10 minutes just talking about Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. That's all he said, and, and a few other words, but he, he quickly ran out of steam. Nothing else to say. If you rate him as a preacher, zero on ten. Maybe one. <laughs> but, young, but there was a young lad seated just there at the back, and as he heard Tears kept streaming down his cheeks. That young boy was Charles Spurgeon. He said, finally, finally, I got the light. My sins are forgiven. It's the simple message of the cross. My sins cannot be removed by human effort. Somebody has done so by his blood. Someone has done it for me. That little skinny, he was actually either a cobbler or a tailor. Uh, Spurgeon tried to reach out to him, couldn't find. But he, all he remembered was, skinny man, all of you skinny people, have hope. <laughs> and, and he wasn't a preacher. You would say, what can God do with that person? What use, what good would come of that well, God is attracted to weakness. God is attracted to weakness. So, this sign points to four big lessons. Number one, who are you, crowd? You are the human race in deep need of a savior. Your physical, emotional condition is nothing compared to the spiritual condition that would befall you if you do not know Jesus Christ the Savior. You know, this word, this four-letter word, H-E-L-L, is real. And it's, 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 it's a place designed for the devil, but it's also the place where people who are found without being covered by the blood of Jesus would end up. But Christ has made Provision for us to redeem us. Who are you, disciples of Christ? You might be hopeless. It might look, you might look helpless in that situation, but God 
wants to partner with you. How that authenticates human worth. How that validates us. I mean, God wants to use me, a doubter, a helpless. Who are you, Jesus? Oh, you're not just a compelling personality. You're much more than that. You are the almighty God and the compassionate Savior. That's who you are. Who are you, little boy? You are one whom God is attracted to because God doesn't despise the low and the, the ones that others would discard. Amen. I want to pray for us. Um, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord, if you have not asked him to become your savior, I'm calling upon you now. Take him in as your savior, receive him, and follow him. Don't just say, I'm going to church, I'm all right. I've recently had had an experience. A young boy followed his parents to church all his life. Never became a Christian. Never. He went to London, ended up with a cult. I got a phone call to reach out to that boy. And so, for a week, I was on the phone with him regularly and, and texting and eventually he came out and he said, for the first time, I now know the Lord Jesus Christ without knowing him through a cult. Without knowing him through a, a cult. But I now know him. I'm reading the word of God. I'm following him. I was merely following my parents to church. But I wasn't a believer. I wasn't following him. Is that you? If it's you, I'm asking you. I, you don't have to come forward, but I'm asking you. Take him in as your savior before it's too late. Will you do it? Will you do it even if you're on, on the screen? You might have been following your parents to church. Give your life to Jesus yourself. Yourself. Thanks for listening today. I hope you subscribe to the podcast so you can be inspired weekly. God bless and have a great day.